Good morning, everybody, um, and welcome to the next session, which is Truganini, featuring Ian Anderson and the author of a new book on Truganini, Cassandra Pybus. I'll begin by acknowledging that the Ghana people are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with this land and acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. So I'll move on to some administration, which is beyond thanking you so much for attending um, the session. It's just, I just still adjusting to the delight of being in large groups of people talking about <laughs> books and ideas. And, um, Speaking, speaking as someone who, like Cassandra, has been stuck in Tasmania for a year, we're really delighted to be up here at this wonderful festival. Um, so while it's, it's great to see, see you here, we need to make sure everyone is appropriately physically distanced because that's one of the, a key condition of the COVID management plan that was approved by SA Health. So if you could please check on your distancing, that would be great. Um, I'd also ask you to support uh, Cassandra by buying her book at the book tent at the conclusion of the session, uh, and she will be available to sign the book. So to open the discussion, I would like to invite Ian Anderson to speak. Okay, um, so I'm going to uh, to a similar acknowledgement in Palawakani, so Ya Palangina. Pankana Ian Anderson, Palawa Latrawitha, Trawalawe Parabana Planmamarana, Katumana Mani Gana Tiana, Kana Mina Nena Nika Lenena. So that's uh, in a language called Palawakani, Blackfellas speak. It's, um, it's a reconstructed rehabilitated language drawn from uh, multiple indigenous languages, mostly from Tasmania, but occasionally from uh, Southeast Australia, uh, such as Adelaide and uh, Western Victoria. Um, it was the language, Creole language, that Aboriginal women spoke. And it's the language that Aboriginal women spoke, mostly on, on the islands, uh, to speak to each other in a way in which the white man who took them there couldn't understand. So it is um, a language that I think is very beautiful because of that history and it reminds us of the kind of history that we're going to talk about uh, today. And I'll say a little bit more in Palawakani uh, towards the end. Thank you. So the first question I have for both of you, which is really, I mean, it's, it's the big question, is why is Truganini and her story important? I'll start with Cassandra as the author of this new work. Well, um, she's important because she was a remarkable colonial, um, sub, a remarkable colonial actor somebody who has um, lived a long and uh, resilient and self-determined life. And that is not how she's ever been presented to us over generations. But she's, she's, in, 
she was one of a number of people that I could have written about, about whom that was true. But the thing about Truganini is, first of all, I have a personal connection to her through my family, having been the recipients of her land. And also because she was known to my ancestors as a young woman. And mostly because the terrible apocalyptic um, project that attempted to destroy the people of Tasmania took place within and was bookended by her life. And so um, in talking about Truganini, you inevitably have to engage with that genocidal project. And, and the thing that's so important to me about her is that she is not some tragic victim dragging out a miserable life in this, um, you know, apocalyptic world. She is, in fact, a woman who is, who is negotiating her way through this, certainly, as I keep saying, this apocalyptic change in ways that are really admirable and, um, and that right up until the end of her life, she remains her own woman. Um, and that she is, uh, you know, she, she's somebody to be admired for her resilience, her negotiation skills, and her um, intelligence, all of those things. And I'm, I grew up with, as I'm sure Ian did, and can talk about this terrible um, story about the last Tasmanian who died this terrible, tragic life and was just eked out this miserable existence for years and years as an old woman by herself. None of this is true. None of this is true. Truganini lived her life on her own terms as best she could in a world that had been completely transformed. And uh, she's very, uh, and, and I find her very engaging insofar as I can find her in the colonial records. I find a very engaging woman who's funny and um, very sure of herself. I want to come later to how we might know Truganini better, but the question I'll ask now, Cassandra, is why, why write this book now um, rather than any other time in your long and really remarkable career as a historian? I've waited 30 years to write this book. Um, my first book, Community of Thieves, touched on this material, but from a point of view of my family and from my family's close neighbour, George Augustus Robinson, um, and I wait, I have waited a long time for somebody else to engage with Truganini in the way I thought was appropriate and the way that I, you know, to get away from these terrible stories. And one morning I woke up and said, I guess I'll have to do it myself. Um, and, and um, you know, it was just something that was hammering away at me that she's always been in my heart, this woman, um, because I feel a huge debt to her a huge debt to her people, I must. I am, you know, I am the inheritor of, of, I stand on her shoulders. And so as part of the whole truth-telling exercise that I feel all white Australians need to engage in, this was my very personal story about this woman who used to walk across what my family considered to be their property on Bruni Island, but was in fact her country. Yes. Ian, why is Truganini important? <clears throat> so, um, uh, cast your minds back to the 1970s. I, I grew up on the northwest coast, or I was born on the northwest coast and lived there as a small child. Um, we uh, grew up knowing that we were a different family. Uh, we knew we were Aboriginal, and the kind of the metaphor that 
uh, was used in my family at the time was that we were descended from Truganini. Now that was a metaphor, we're not actually her genealogical uh, descendant, but we're certainly a metaphorical uh, descendant. Now, at the time, uh, I, have a, I have a very a hazy, gazy image of the Northwest Coast. When I think about the Northwest Coast at that time, Barstrel's Pastoral Symphony runs through my head. Uh, it's a beautiful country. Uh, we were living out of Devonport, out past Quoba, uh, on the Eugenana Road, uh, not far from a place called Paradise, not far from a place called Beulah, in this kind of countryside that had been recreated with images of English pastoralism, but with names like Quoba, it's an Aboriginal name, Eugenana, it's an Aboriginal name. So with the kind of the remnants of these historical reminders of the Aboriginal past um, in living near what is now called the Six Rivers, which is uh, an estuarine river system that was incredibly rich and verdant uh, in pre-colonial times. So our, our historical memory was that, that deep. Um, as a child, we learnt about Truganini. Truganini was a metaphor for extinction. That's what we were taught as children in the classroom. That's, that's the extent of Aboriginal history that was taught. There was a, a film uh, that was popularised in the mid-70s by uh, an archaeologist called The Last Tasmanian. So this whole metaphor of extinction was what we grew up in, and yet we knew we were not extinct. We knew we were an Aboriginal family, but we didn't have a historical language around which to write that. And I can remember uh, as a teenager being quite compelled by this and wanting to know, actually wanting to know more about my history. So um, as the, the geeky young teenager that would eventually go to university despite what his parents thought was best for him, I was reading books about Trigonini. And I can uh, remember a moment, I think I was about 17 or 18, when I was uh, in tears, reading these books uh, that told of the last Tasmanian, that told of a history that had, su had suddenly ended. So one of the first things I wrote as uh, a young person was a very short piece for Art Monthly that actually looked at uh, how Triganini had become a, uh, a colonial trope, a white person's history uh, that told the end of a story, not a continuity of a story and not a story that uh, Tasmanian Aboriginal people at the time could actually find themselves in. So she became quite important for me, partly because of that, but also because um, I sense was of a tragic history, when in fact I, I thought there was another story there, another way of telling uh, that history and the 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 kind of the, the standout, um, I think it was Robert Hughes, who called her a sealer's mole. Right? Okay. So this is a, this is a particular way in which uh, an amateur woman had been constructed that was not only tragic, uh, self-defeating, uh, without agency, but it also left uh, those people who were the, had that historical legacy without a past or without a history. And, and I think uh, it was uh, another historian at the time who 
who talked about Tasmanian Aboriginal people as the people without history. So I'm, I mean, I'm, I grew up in Tasmania, I was born and grew up in Tasmania as well with the portrayal of Truganini that you describe um, and was compelled by the story but there was always this sense for me that I couldn't quite get to her. So a lot of my childhood was spent in the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery where there were what we now see as very dated and offensive um, portrayals of Aboriginal culture and indeed the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery only last month has apologised for its past curatorial and other practices. Um, Cassandra Andean, do you think that there's something peculiar in Tasmania about our slowness or incapacity to come to terms with our history and that part of our history? Um, do you want to go first? I don't think we've been any slower than anybody else. Um, I think that the thing is that Tasmania has been burdened with um, the, um, uh, you know, the scapegoated, as, as, if you like. So there's a lot more expected of Tasmanians, you know, like you, you, you killed all the Aborigines, so when are you going to say sorry? Um, I think that um, the denial that has been so profound in Tasmania is pretty universal in Australia, but to come back to the profound denialism in Tasmania, it was so much easier to do because there, as Ian has pointed out, you know, you could obliterate the, the possibility that there were um, any people that you needed to engage with, uh, recognise their rights, understand their culture. Um, and the, the Tasmanians have so embraced this. I mean, in the ninth, it began in the mid-19th century, and by the 20th century, it, it had been um, kind of become a scientific trope that was particularly um, pushed by the Royal Society and the Tasmanian Art Museum, the two people who've just apologised for it. And the thing is that it was also, you know, I mean, it's also being driven by the centre of empire, you know, where the um, where there was this fascination with this unique extinct race of people um, and that they, they were being used to tell a particular kind of narrative about human development, which was, you know, they were pre-Paleolithic people, right? And so therefore, um, so, so therefore, as you remember what would have been, you would have seen in the art gallery as a child would have been, you know, a lot of stone tools, pictures of the, because you were no longer allowed to show the skeleton, picture of the skeleton and so forth and the message is very clear this isn't just um, the, these are people who belong in the pre-stone age you know these are people who belong so far away they couldn't possibly have anything to offer us in the modern world now this is not a story that um, Australians have been able to tell themselves quite so comfortably because an adaptable intelligent highly um, clever people were still however much you trod them down and however much you pushed them into concentration camps and things, they were still there. Whereas in Tasmania, they were, they, they were hidden in the way that um, Dolly Dalrymple's family was hidden. Um, but so you could just say, well, you know, there were these people who were so primitive, <laughs> so removed from modern man as to be of no consequence to how we might view ourselves. That's 
that's pretty amazing kind of story for generations to kind of take on. And so it's been a long process to try and get Tas the Tasmanians to see that um, this is just a nonsense. This is complete nonsense. And, the, and to give the art gallery, the Tasmanian art gallery, its due, they dismantled all that yes. stuff. <laughs> and it might also say they have been working for years on this apology because they wanted to get it right. And they wanted to make sure that they did acknowledge, and they found out to their horror just how much they had to acknowledge how, what, because how much, what terrible things had been done in the name of science in, in that organisation. And so I think I'm waiting to see what the, um, uh, the, the Museum of Sydney has to say, actually, because I know about their Tasmanian skulls. I'm waiting to see what uh, particularly the Museum of Melbourne has to say, because I know about their Tasmanian uh, uh, skeletal collections. I know about the way they had the cast of Truganini on, on show until nearly 1990 in the middle of their museum. I saw it there. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I think that it's very, we can be very quick to say that Tasmanians are somehow particularly um, uh, in, in denial about this. I think Australians are in denial about this. Um, Ian, what do you think? I, look, I don't, don't disagree. Um, the, uh, the population cataclysm was as profound as quick in Victoria. Yes. Um, so gold, uh, the, the rapid uh, influx of, of gold-seeking population uh, meant that in Victoria the decline in the Aboriginal population was as profoundly cataclysmic in that uh, generation uh, which triggered any spans in Tasmania. I think the other, there is another element to the Tasmanian story, that's the convict story. And one of the things that was equally true is that uh, most Tasmanians, most Tasman anyone, anyone who's lived in Tasmania for a long period of time has a convict ancestor, almost everyone. Um, <clears throat> but very few people could talk about that either. And so I, I remember uh, my aunts on my dad's side, my non-Indigenous side, uh, when asked about their family story, um, they were in their 80s when I did this, uh, and they told us these very romantic stories about how their grandparents came to Tasmania, fell in love, which emitted all of them were convicts. So there is kind of, uh, there is an amnesia and difficulty in talking about the past in Tasmania that is particularly that it's particularly profound, but it's no different uh, in relationship to Indigenous Australians as anywhere else uh, in the country. I mean, I'm really interested in... I've been in and out of Tasmania all my life, really, and moving back recently to see the way that people... more people are using Palawakani and using language, using the Aboriginal names of you know, uh, Kunyani for Mount, uh, the original name of Mount Wellington and Lutuwita as Tasmania. That's very recent and our children in schools are learning that. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens next, I think, for subsequent generations of Tasmania, which bring, Tasmanians and Australians, which brings me to my next question, that how can we, Given that Truganini is long dead and we can only know her through source, recorded sources, written sources, 
contemporaneous accounts, whatever, whatever. How do we get imaginatively closer to this woman, this historical figure, this cultural figure, given that we can't speak with her? So what are the kind of tools and imaginative ways in to a deeper understanding of this real person? Well, we can't um, any more than we can, you know, really imaginatively um, re recover any historical figure who hasn't left material in their own yes. voice, in their, you know. But one of the things that historians have learned to do um, over um, the last few decades, and I in particular have been engaged in doing this my whole, uh, through my whole practice is trying to recover the lives of people who've been written out of history or completely submerged because they were not able to speak with their own voice um, and have that recorded, um, write letters, keep diaries, etc. Um, and so you learn to read against the grain uh, in the sources that are available to you. And sometimes these sources are very fragmentary sources um, uh, like lists of, um, you know, like government lists of things. And, um, uh, you know, I worked a long time, for two decades actually, in African-American slavery and learned to read the sort of slave lists. Nearly went blind doing it. But nevertheless, it's a way of kind of extracting valuable kind of information from it. And, and I did that also in looking at convicts, black convicts in particular, um, but that, that gave me a real sort of sense for how you could read into the archives to try and find information that wasn't immediately available. And in the case of Truganini, she probably is the best documented indigenous um, actor in, in Australian colonial history, by a long way. And that's largely down to one person, George Augustus Robinson, who was a... A, a huge keeper of a diary. I mean, he kept a daily diary no matter what he was doing, quite detailed. And for a lot of this time, Truganini traveled around Tasmania with a group of other indigenous people from Tasmania with George Augustus Robinson in his friendly missions, which were basically finding all the other people in Tasmania who hadn't yet been contacted and persuading them to um, put themselves under the governor's protection, which actually meant being shipped off to a concentration camp on Flinders Island, as it turned out. Now, during that time, he paid a lot of attention to uh, Truganini and her companions. He really was very interested in them. He really cared about them. And when he was out in the bush with them, which was most of the time over a period of five or six years, he really became one of them. And so he can, but overlaying everything he writes in his diaries is his evangelical Christianity and his sense of his paternalistic responsibility. He wants to see himself as their father, you know. And they, he gets them to call him father. But nevertheless, he's curious and he writes a lot about them. And so if you read against the grain, if you don't, you, you don't try and see it through his eyes, but you can, you can see an entirely different narrative about how these people are reacting to each other, how they're negotiating their way, how they deal with him, how they in fact um, manipulate him 
for their own purposes, in order that they get to stay in their own country, living their own traditional life for as long as is humanly possible. And, uh, and she's um, particularly good at this. And so, um, to a certain extent, it's a, it's a group biography of all of these small group of people, but um, she is the one who is the most, in many ways, the key, because she's the first one he meets when she's 16 years old um, on Bruni Island. And then when she's on the friendly mission, as Ian reminded me today, she's only like 21 years old, and she's so um, dominant in that um, group w with a number of very major um, uh, indigenous male leaders, including her husband, Waradi, who is also a remarkable, remarkable in, uh, uh, character. Um, I couldn't take my eyes off him a lot of the time. He's, he, he, he needs a lot more attention. I'm waiting for somebody to write a book about Waradi. <laughs> so, because I'm not an historian and most of us aren't, so I'm really curious about how, as an historian, you do you do get cut through and, and cut a, do that interpretive slice, if you like, through the diaries, through the... Uh, yeah, I'll ask Ian this, because he... Because so, um, mm. uh, there's kind of... Uh, and I'm not a historian either, um, but there is a strategy that works in this book, is to begin from a basis that uh, Trigandini has a fundamental humanity. She is not profoundly different. She is profoundly similar. She has grown up in a very culturally different milieu. Uh, she's grown up in, a, in, in incredible trauma by the time she's 21. But she wants to love people. She wants to uh, imagine a way in which uh, she can see a future for herself and her friends and her family and struggles with all the sorts of shifting political alliances with other folks uh, with George Augustus Robin. So there's a fundamental thing about actually seeing her as a full human being. Um, the second thing I, I, I would uh, observe is kind of it's actually hard to get Robinson off the page. I know. Uh, he is so dominant um, because that is the historical source. Yeah, and, um, he's, and he's extraordinary too and he's very hard to get off the page, yeah. yes. The other, the other thing goes to the question about how do you write this history as a non-Indigenous person, how you might write this history as an Indigenous person. And I think um, I, my sort of view around this um, is increasingly straightforward, is all Australian history is Aboriginal history, period. You can't write a bit about Australian history without thinking about the Indigenous presence. So it then becomes a question about how do you ethically engage in this history? What are the ethical relationships uh, that you bring to the craft of history? And how do you ethically think about your part of that story? And um, in, in, in the telling of this story, there's also a Pibus history there. Pibus history doesn't dominate. It's not the centre of the story, but it's certainly in the history. And it gives a way of shaping that, histo that historiography or that, that writing school. The final thing I would say is that I'm not sure that uh, an Indigenous person would write this history um, because I think that there are other biographies to be written. Yes. You know, there's Mana Lagena, uh, there's Warta uh, Matutuyena, there's Fanny Cochrane Smith. 
which are all our ancestors, and they're the stories we'd probably want to tell. I, I think there is an Indigenous interest and an Indigenous telling of this history, but it's maybe not the first history uh, that an Aboriginal Tasmanian would write. And I think there's another dimension to it which I think would be difficult for Cassandra to explore, is that there is a cultural dimension to Taganeni uh, that requires an interpretation um, and it would be hard for someone like Cassandra to feel that that's an ethical, I'm assuming this. Uh, oh, assume away. Yeah. Uh, that it's an ethically safe place to be, but it is, I think, a really, and it's really the, the notion, uh, there were a couple of points where you get a sense that she is engaged, she's very human in her engagement, but it's also shaped by her cultural world. A sense of uh, the spirit world, uh, which is all there in the story and just waiting to be drawn out by an Indigenous historian who could actually do that in a more culturally safe way. My sense is it should be an Indigenous filmmaker. Um, I really think that we need um, somebody to imaginatively recover this woman who, in culturally appropriate ways, in ways that I wouldn't have attempted and and don't see appropriate. And I also agree with you, it's quite possible that the reason that I waited and waited for somebody to write about Truganini and felt that it wasn't going to happen was I really did feel it wasn't going to happen because, partly because of the way she's become this trope of extinction which is really offensive to Aboriginal Tasmanians, but also because there are other people um, that that were being written about. I know, for example, that Gay Sculthorpe is writing about um, Fanny Smith and her mother. I know that there are other people working on Manalagena, and all of this I'm thrilled about, I might say. And so, because of my own personal sense that um, I had a personal connection to her, I felt this was something I could ethically and safely do without... Um, without trying to um, venture into areas that were I didn't know about. Um, and so to this extent, I see that it's an unfinished kind of project and that I'm kind of trying to encourage um, an indigenous female woman filmmaker. Uh, Rachel Perkins, are you listening? She's heard this from me before. Um, to make a film of it, because I feel that it would—that's the way to go, actually, uh, rather than uh, another history attempt at the history, because the sources that historians have to work with are just so tainted. Yeah. Would you like to add anything to that, Ian? I mean, where would you like it? Where would you like the telling of the larger Tasmanian story to go next? Um, I, I think there is still a, a bigger story about uh, the Aboriginal women that shaped uh, Tasmanian history. Um, uh, uh, Aboriginal women, apart from Trigani, are, are absolutely absent from the narrative. Uh, if you... Uh, and there's a project underway um, that I know about that actually documents how many current historians who write about Tasmanian history actually don't write about Aboriginal women as named individuals. Um, so there, there is something to be told about that. I think that the um, Manalagana story is, is deeply, deeply and profoundly needs to be told in a, in a more biographical way. And then I think the, the stories should also shift to, to open up 
those narratives of survival, uh, those narratives about how people survived uh, through the late 19th century and, and early 1900s, um, how they got on with family life, how they managed to uh, keep themselves out of the, well, not always, um, tried to keep themselves and their families safe. So I, I think, and the other um, part of the Tasmanian story, which I think uh, needs to be told, is the connections uh, with uh, Aboriginal lives on the continents, on the mainland. Um, so um, uh, the, the family that I know most about are the Briggs family, uh, which is part of my family's story, who are very, very constructive to Aboriginal life here uh, in Victoria, in New South Wales. Um, many of the kind of um, significant uh, figures in contemporary Australian history, Aboriginal figures, actually have Aboriginal Tasmanian ancestry. And they did that through lives of connecting, uh, connecting in the gold fields into the Victorian Aboriginal missions, uh, raising families, and contributing to the uh, uh, indigenous political uh, revival in the 1970s. So there's a profoundly positive story of a Tasmanian contribution uh, that needs to be told that actually gets us past the Trigonini story. Well, one of the interesting aspects of this book is that we do see Truganini go with Robinson to mainland Australia. And I found that, I didn't even know that she'd done that. So that disruption of the idea that Tasmania is this funny little island totally hermetically sealed from the rest of the world is really, because I find that to be really colonial as well, that construction of us as, you know, the separate, the island so, state. So the, yeah. the oral history in Tasmania is not like that. Yes. So yes. The, um, when Robinson, I think this is, I've got a historian next to me, so I need to be careful. But uh, when Robinson was interviewing uh, folks from the northeast about their stories of getting to the island, um, uh, I think he was possibly exploring from the mythological connection. And people said, um, we walked. We walked mm. from the north. Mm. So people had a, uh, a memory of connection into Australian Aboriginal well, that's you know, four, five, ten thousand years old, um, uh, pre the pre the land bridge. Um, the closest linguistic connection to some of the the northern language is actually the Gunai languages in southwestern Victoria. So there is a a long history. People did not live on the island imagining they weren't connected to yeah. a greater humanity, and people certainly didn't live all through the colonial history in that way because. Uh, as soon as the sealing industry was in the Straits, you've got movements between mostly Aboriginal women uh, being moved as 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 property. So uh, Warata Mototiena, who um, was one of um, a, a coastal Aboriginal woman, uh, the mother of um, Dolly Briggs, uh, she was taken uh, to Mauritius, where possibly had an, uh, some family there, and then brought back uh, via Sydney. Uh, to, I think, Launceston about the late 1830s, I think. Um, so uh, the Straits was an incredibly mobile place. People were moving. 
people were moving uh, in ways about forming relationships, about looking at ways to survive, uh, moving back from a Bunurong country into the Straits across to Corindirk Aboriginal Mission. And so that, that was a particularly uh, active history that's been sort of submerged under the, under the ways in which some of these histories are retold. I'd like to invite you to read now, Ian, from Cassandra's book. There's a particular passage I think you want to share with us. So I might ask Cassandra to just talk a bit about what I'm going to read before right. I do this. On page 242. So if you could just set it up for me. Just have a look. Do you need exactly what it is you're going to read? <laughs> I've got. Ah, right, yes. Um, Truganini uh, left Bruni Island when she was uh, 20, about 20 years old. Um, maybe a little younger. Um, she was taken away with her husband, Waradi, and his two children from a previous relationship. And they were the last people from Bruni Island. And they went with George Augustus Robinson to the West Coast. The intention was to meet up with people on the West Coast. And then for many years after that, they traveled around Tasmania, as I've mentioned. And then they were taken to Flinders Island, where, um, which was terrible. And so Robinson couldn't get away from there fast enough. So he negotiated to go to Victoria. And he took her to Victoria. And that's a long story we won't get into. And then she comes back to Flinders Island. And, and, and eventually, in 1847, there a small group of Tasmanian people, including her, is relocated to Oyster Cove across the channel from Bruni Island and part of Nuanoni country, which is her country. And for the rest of her life, which is a long life, she lives at Oyster Cove. And the assumption that has been made about this is that this is a miserable existence, that she's just eking out the last of, the last of, the last, last, lasting, lasting, lasting. There's nothing of the sort. She's back in her country. She is the only person who gets to go back to her country. And she makes the best of it. And she's forever going over to Bruni Island. Um, you know, every way possible. She manages to commandeer nearly every man around Oyster Cove who's got a boat to row her there. She'll stay there for weeks on end. Uh, she goes for quite a long time with her very close friend, Dre, um, who's uh, also got kin relationships with Bruni Island. And so basically, this is what you need to understand about her. She is in her country uh, for the bulk of her life, which is a story that is never told, and it really changes the way in which you get to see her, right? As often as she could get a boat to take her, Taraginini would cross the channel to Bruni Island, most likely accompanied by her kinswoman, Dre. Taraginini knew every inch of North Bruni. After landing at Woodcutters Point, she would have been seen walking across to Richard Pivas's grant and then to William Javis's to get to the southern section of the island where there were no settlers. At the long, narrow stretch of the neck on the channel side were helix of shells not yet covered by undergrowth, indicating where Nuani families had made camp before the settlers came. Here, Truganini and Dre would cast off their long sack dresses to walk around, walk about naked. 
They would wade in the, to the water to scoop up mussels, oysters and scallops that they opened at their fire at night. After feasting, after feasting on this harvest, they chewed the shells over their shoulder, just as their families had done in that lost world of only 40 years ago. Crossing to the ocean side of the island, Triganini would dive for the succulent crayfish she knew hid in the rock crevices behind the waving kelp forests. She would comb the fine sand of Adventure Bay for tiny mariner shells to polish and string along into long necklaces. If it was the egg se egging season, she might walk to the grassy point at the southern end of the bay where James Kelly's whaling station was now a tumble-down ruin, to reach the rocky island where the penguins nested. Or else she might follow the Brackish Creek inland to find the swan's nests. When the mutton bird chicks hatched in the burrows of the neck, most of the people from the station would come to the island with her. The settlers on North Bruni always knew when Truganini and her friends were on the island, and no one was disturbed by her presence. The Pivas and Davis families remembered Truganini and Dre as young women, and it pleased them to give them tea, tobacco, and potatoes, uh, just as they had all those years before. Um, when, I, when I read this section, uh, well, a couple of things, I then wept for a number of reasons, and I'll stop reading. I actually didn't read the rest of the book. Um, so there are a number of reasons why I wept, and I mean I really wept. Uh, in part, it was uh, me saying goodbye to the young man who was so angry at how the world had written about this woman that actually it started my academic career. Um, in part, it was saying goodbye to a band of people, uh, the Pive, the Malabaina, uh, Manalagana, Watakawijia, uh, the people of that generation who I now re-encountered as very human people. In part, I wept because this was the end of the film that I wanted to remember. I knew where the story would go. I didn't want to read that bit. But this is, in my mind, the film end. Uh, a film where someone who had been so traumatised as a young woman had found her peace. It was, uh, in my view, her eulogy, the story that was never written and the story uh, that should have been written when she died. So, Milathina Nika, Milathina Mana, Tapilchi Larapana, Tapilchi Paralini, Tapilchi Kanyeni, Tapilchi Tayircha, Milathina Nika, Wananta Pakana, Waranta Palawa, Milathina Nika. And that, I'd say, Walika, I want to say goodbye. I feel like she can rest, like her, at time when her, her ashes were into the Don Chikasa channel, her spirit can rest and we can honour her. Thank you, Ian.
We could stop there, but we won't. We'll have some questions from the audience. If you could come to the microphone. Um, we have 15 minutes for questions. Yes, thank you. Um, thank you very much for that. Um, I believe the Aboriginal people are the sovereign people of Australia and it's my personal wish that we have a, an Aboriginal Governor-General, someone like the Witcher Adonadu. Oh, he's but, a bit good. Be good. <laughs> but what I really wanted to ask was, I understand that there were quite a number of Tasmanian Aborigines taken to Kangaroo Island in South Australia and that was happening in the early 1800s and I wondered whether there's been any work done on that and whether perhaps one of, of uh, Truganini's brothers or sisters, sisters or cousins came to Kangaroo Island. Sisters. Thank you. Her sisters. Two sisters, and one of whom I believe, who was nicknamed Bumblefoot Sal, um, was one of the very last um, of the Aboriginal women living on Kangaroo Island. It's not completely clear that that is Truganini's sister, but I suspect that it is. Yes, there is an excellent book about um, the 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 Aboriginal families of uh, Kangaroo Island, written by Reby Taylor. And I recommend that you have a look at it. But yes, it's there's a lot of interaction between the Narangeri women, Narangeri women who are brought to Kangaroo Island and Tasmanian Aboriginal women who are brought to Kangaroo Island. It's fascinating, actually, and the and the Aboriginal families that still persist on Kangaroo Island. Yes. Next question. My name is uh, Roddy. Cassandra, I have a request. It's a it's a question. Uh, could you please desist? from saying in your very first words today was that you inherited land on Tasmania. Could you please desist from that? Because the word inherit is based on the word inhere. It's a verb that means belong. Thank you. Would either of you like to comment or we take that as a comment? Okay. I'll take that as a comment. Okay. Um, thank you, next question. Uh, thank you, Cassandra, for this book. It's fantastic. Um, as I think you indicated, it could have been called Truganini, Robinson and Moretti, but I wouldn't want to diminish Truganini. But I, I just wondered, my question is a little bit about Robinson as a historian, in a sense. And if we're thinking about the current national indigenous voice project which is underway as a conversation at the moment. Could this book and this conversation between or about Woodetti, about Truganini uh, and about Robinson be some kind of template for a conversation across the non-Indigenous and the Indigenous community? about moving forward? Do you think there's any metaphor template uh, there? No. Um, I, I think that uh, Robinson is probably the best you're going to get 
out of settler society, you know, but he was deeply and profoundly split between his, um, his colonial aspirations to better himself and to climb up the economic ladder, and he used his sable companions, as he referred to Truganini and Woretti, as a stepping stone for doing that, and he profoundly betrayed them. And, um, you know, to that extent, I think he's a good metaphor for, you know, what he's the best I have come across, right? He's a man who genuinely cared for these people. He genuinely saw them as complex human beings like himself. But when push comes to shove, they were his pathway to, he's moved from being a tradesman to a gentleman, courtesy of um, the, his conciliation of the Tasmanian, and removal of the Tasmanian Aboriginal people. And that as for those personal friends of his, he profoundly and utterly betrayed them, and they understood that about him, which is why Truganini would have no truck with him um, after they went to, Tas went to Victoria. She basically was done with them. Um, so no, I don't think that there's a template there at all, except it bears, we, bear, we bear in mind that even the best of, of white settlers were more motivated by their desire for land and to better themselves in the colonial system than they were to care for their fellow human beings. Yes. I, Would you like to add to that, <coughs> I, I, I think is, and I've always had an um, uncomfortable relationship with Robinson. I, I think all that Cassandra said is I agree with. I think that betrayal is most obvious in Port Phillip. Uh, and it's the Port Phillip side of the story, actually, that I hadn't act I'd known about. Uh, it ended up in two young Aboriginal men getting hung. The betrayal was so profound. Yeah. Uh, and I can't forgive him for that. Young Aboriginal men he loved. Um, yeah, and yes. who, he, who he abandoned. So um, he, he, is a, he is a very mixed character. Um, but, you know... Um, uh, nothing in colonial history gives you people that you want to really hug uh, at that particular time. Um, and you've got to remember that uh, my ancestors were very brutal white men uh, who were actually profoundly involved in the rape and brutality uh, to Aboriginal women, as, as many Tasmanians actually need to deal with in terms of our historical uh, reconciliation. And he was better than that. But but I can't forgive him for Port Phelps. Hmm. Next question. Roy, um, I arrived later, I'm ancient, and uh, did you mention why Truganini and her two sisters had no children? <clears throat> Do you want to answer that or will I? So um, we can only speculate, I think. Um, the... Um, Rates of illness for young women at the time were very mm -hmm. profound. Um, can, I, can I maybe describe another answer? Um, so when Robertson did a census of Aboriginal people, as he did across the island, um, the, the, the ratio of men to women in the northeast tribes was, uh, in 1831, 69 to 4. 69 men, 4 women. So the, the, the mortality of Aboriginal women in the Bass Straits was profound. Uh, much of the genocide in Tasmania was a femicide. But actually when we come to speculate as to why 
people didn't have children. We don't know. I think we do know. I did a study in Tabar in New Guinea and proved that it was gonorrhea. Mm. And it was gonorrhea brought by the... And it's proven. It's not speculation. Yes, I, I think that you're right, but we don't know for sure. Thanks. So I'll move on to the... There's a, another question, I believe. I'm a, Tarn, I'm a student from Torrensville Primary and I would like to ask why did the indigenous Tasmanians become extinct unlike so many other indigenous groups who didn't become extinct even though they're like similar size? Um, so we'll start with Ian, I think. Uh, Ian, I think. We'll start with Ian. So um, part of the story that I would say is that Aboriginal Tasmanians didn't become extinct but their history wasn't told. So my mother was an Aboriginal woman. Both her parents were Aboriginal and we were grown up in the, in the island of Tasmania. So our, part of what we'd like to tell is that story of survival. The, the, the differences were actually the similarities with other histories very strong. Uh, so in Victoria, where I also grew up, that, that history of survival of Aboriginal women largely who raised families is not told. So we'd like to tell the story of survival rather than, this, than a story of extinction and like to explore ways in which we can understand how that continuity was passed down uh, from our mums, our grandmums, um, uh, our grandfathers and so on. Cassandra, would you like to well, answer that? I was going to say that we don't talk about the Aboriginal people of Tasmania being extinct um, because they're not. Um, but it is the case that in the first half of the 19th century in Tasmania, the people who uh, were the original owners of the land were removed one way or another, um, that they were, they, either, they were either killed or they died of epidemic disease. Now, we've all had the experience of epidemic disease, uh, disease with COVID. You imagine what that's like when there's absolutely no protection whatsoever and it will just sweep through communities. That did happen in the first half of the... In, on an island with a small population. And then, the, the, then there was the forced removal of people who were removed to a place where they, the, the capacity to rebuild themselves as communities was taken away from them. Um, and so... The fact that it was an island um, and the fact that it was, there was a ruthless uh, intention of the colonial government to remove the indigenous people, remove them from the island, was easier to do because it was an island. As Ian has already said, what happened in Victoria was probably more catastrophic what happened in New South Wales was probably more catastrophic, but it's, a, but it's not a small island. It's, it's a much bigger area. But it is wrong to consider that what happened in Tasmania was extinction. But there is another word that we can, I think, readily apply, and that's genocide. Now, to say that there's a genocide doesn't mean that everybody is, in, is extinguished. It means that there is an attempt to an attempt to extinguish a people, but it, it wasn't successful there as it hasn't been anywhere else in the world. 
Thank you, Cassandra. Now, one, we have time for one more very short question. Thank you. Hello. Thank you very much for the talk. I was actually um, moved to come up and ask this question because of the last question. I spent nearly 10 years between the mid-80s and mid-90s working at the Museum of Victoria in the education section. Quite often I'd have school students come in and they would say exactly that same thing. And I was lucky enough to be able to say, yes, but I actually work with some Tasmanian Aboriginal people. I worked with a lady called Sandra Smith, Ian, um, and I worked with Gay Sculthorpe. I spent the next 20 years writing educational materials for teachers saying exactly that, and yet it doesn't get through. How can we actually educate teachers to teach students the true history of Tasmania? Um, so there are some fabulous resources now. There's a project uh, being run by uh, a young Aboriginal man, Todd Sculthorpe, in Tasmania. The another Oka... Sculthorpe. Yeah, another Sculthorpe. Uh, so Sandra Smith was my mother, by the way. Um, uh, yes. Um, uh, we, and I, I think that probably the issue is of providing teachers with the resources that they, that they can use in their curriculum in ways that tell alternative, the, the different histories, providing them with the mechanisms to work with Aboriginal communities, the relationships, uh, and the sort of resources and the material that can draw out those stories. So uh, having um, Tasmanian schools being able to talk about Fanny Cochran Smith is a very powerful, she was quite an extraordinary woman. She wasn't being taught when I was at school, but she tells a very different history. And so I think it's a lot about the resources. I think. You know, probably um, the education system today is very different to what was in the 70s, that there, are, there is a teacher workforce who really wants to teach alternative histories but need, this, need the educational uh, resources to enable them to do that. Uh, can I just add something to yes, that? Yes. I would say that mm. in Tasmania you wouldn't find somebody, uh, a, a school child, who would pose a question like that. Um, in Tasmania, I don't think people think that Aboriginal people are extinct anymore. And that is all down to the um, extraordinary work, I think, that the Aboriginal community themselves have done to um, be, be, to re-insert re indigeneity into the Tasmanian sensibility. I mean, I don't know if you were at the Invasion Day rally in Tasmania. There were 20,000 people there in a tiny place in the middle of COVID, 20,000 people. Um, and basically there was a sense that, yes, we understand you're here. We want, we want you to be part of our community. We want our community to change, to recognize uh, your contribution. And I think that, um, uh, you know, th there's a sort of, th there's, a, there's a change in the general conversation, which is going to make a huge difference not just in Tasmania, but in Australia. It's, it's quite wonderful to see. Um, been waiting a long time for it, I must say. But, yeah. Thank you both for your contributions today. Um, and to Cassandra for writing this book, finally, thank you. <laughs> um, and Ian for the very thoughtful 
and affecting response to it. I, it's this kind of dialogue that Adelaide Writers Week does so well that we really need more of in this country because it's only by this really quite open and um, honest and iterative exchange between our different understandings and perspectives that I think we're ever going to get anywhere. So thank you to for being the audience. I do encourage you to buy the book and join Cassandra at the signing table. As you're doing that, I must remind you to maintain social distancing and if any of the COVID marshals ask you to move, please do that so that the um, festival remains safe for everybody. And I'd invite the audience to thank Ian and Cassandra for their contributions today.